Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the new paid membership option that we recently rolled out. This option is meant for people that have been getting value from the podcast and want to enable us to keep producing it in a more sustained way. It's also for people that want extra stuff, such as bonus content, a Slack room that's vibrant and filled with people tackling climate change from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives, as well as a host of programming and events that get organized in the Slack room. We also have a virtual town hall once a month where you can get a preview of what's to come and provide feedback and input on our direction. We'll be adding more membership benefits over time. If you want to learn more, just go to the website, myclimatejourney.co. And if you're already a member, thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Danny Kennedy, the CEO of New Energy Nexus. Danny is a clean energy veteran who's done a number of things over the years on the advocacy side, on the entrepreneurship side, and in the public sector. New Energy Nexus is an organization that connects entrepreneurs everywhere to capital to build an abundant clean energy economy that benefits all. Danny's also managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund, which includes overseeing the $25 million CalSeed Fund. He's an advisor to young green tech entrepreneurs in China with the Asia Society. He's president of CalCharge, which is a public-private partnership working to advance energy storage. And he was also co-founder of Sungevity back in 2007, which created remote solar design. We have a great discussion in this episode covering a wide range of topics, including Danny's background and experience, starting from a young age interested in climate change and how that interest has manifested over the years to the great breadth of experience that he has today. We've also talked about how his views on the problem have evolved and also where he's spending his portfolio of time today and the things he thinks will be most impactful in the climate fight. And also just some of the barriers and hurdles and what we can and should be doing to try to unlock making progress faster. Danny Kennedy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You, my friend, are, are a legend. I feel like every other person, if not more, that I've talked to in the last year and a half that has spent any meaningful time in this space have all pointed me in your direction. So I'm so glad that we're finally getting the opportunity to have this discussion. Well, likewise, thank you. That's the legacy of long-lived work in the space more than anything <laughs> just been around doing it and you know through through some some turbulent times and and it didn't scare you away so right there i think it takes a certain kind of grit you you know you either want it really badly or you're crazy i don't know which one maybe both both, both and <laughs> <laughs> where does this discussion find you today geographically i know we're smack in the middle of a pandemic yeah so Oakland, California, where I'm based, and we have the sort of headquarters of New Energy Nexus, the organization I lead, been here about 12 years. In Oakland? Yeah. For all the trips I had taken to San Francisco over the years, until I started focusing on climate, I had actually never been to Oakland, but it's a great place. Mm, it is. And, and it's the, the East Bay is really the 
clean tech valley, if you will, off of the Bay Area. There's been a lot of great startups come up there. And, you know, it's sort of set between the two big campuses, the UC Berkeley and the Stanford campus in some sense. And and the, the mayors on the East Bay side of this, the Bay Area have, have done a lot of work over the years to try to attract that industry and grow it. And it's been successful for them, created a lot of jobs, a lot of activity. It's been good. Maybe there's some learnings we can incorporate here in the Boston area. Not that the infrastructure doesn't exist, but as an entrepreneur in my bones, I'm always thinking about how to do things better. So in 30 seconds or less, no, I'm, I'm just joking about the 30 seconds or less part, but I guess first just, I mean, you've done so many different things over the years in clean tech and hit it from so many different angles. How do you describe who you are and what you do? I am basically an activist using companies and capital formation to drive success in the energy transition, which is inevitable but needs to speed up a lot. So every company I help start is sort of a campaign, a campaign or a something. There's some play on words there that I can't quite pronounce. But, you know, it's it sort of comes out of my history as an actual activist, like professional Greenpeace guy and, and doing other work in the 20th century, way back when, and just sort of seeing social change as a thing that entrepreneurs are actually very good at making markets and changing behaviors and moving policy as a function of their enterprise. And so I've become adept over the last decade or two at doing that too. And, you know, in all the discussions that I've had so far, and it's many hundreds at at this point, this is the first that I've ever heard someone describe the company formation process as a campaign. And I also come to think of it, I don't know that I've talked to anyone who has made that transition from being an actual activist to the innovation side. Is it is that rare in, in your experience as well? No, probably less rare than you think it is. People just don't talk about it as part of their pedigree. You know, it's not a badge of honor necessarily in some sectors of business. But it makes a lot of sense when you're an activist out there trying to make change in a policy, whatever it may be. You do a lot with nothing. <laughs> you don't take no for an answer. And you, you know, are an athlete and do whatever it takes, lobbying, civil disobedience, publication, communication, research, science, whatever you need to do, you get done. And that's very entrepreneurial, actually, if you think about it. It's just it's in a nonprofit form to some degree. So I think the, the transition is actually somewhat natural. But in terms of thinking about each business in this space as a campaign, I mean, it's it maybe just the mental model that I inherited from my past. But I think every niche, you know, as big as they are becoming, is something that requires, you know, some seed to grow into it to make it as big as it needs to be. And that's kind of the campaign piece. You know, we, we have trillions of dollars of work to do to go through this wheel of creative destruction where we displace fossil fuels that have had 100 plus years of dominance with an insurgency of startups that we need to foster and feed with capital. And, and that work needs to be very intentional and strategic in time sequence and in space, in, in geography, which is very much like a, a campaign strategy. It's, you know, the other metaphor that is often used is a war footing. You know, which hill are you going to take this year? Which theater of engagement are you in? What stage of battle are we at? Well, you say trillions, but I mean, the government just sprinkled trillions around just today as it relates to disaster assistance with the pandemic. So it's, it's amazing how that, I mean, it's not that we don't need it. We certainly do, but it's amazing how 
We seem to be able to find it when we, when we want to find it, but have no idea how we would ever get it when we don't. It is amazing. You know, it's a good lesson to learn with COVID-19 that we can, as a society, do this when we need to and want to. And that's how we should approach climate and, and the energy transition. We haven't had that war footing mentality from government before, but it has also been true and it's been known for a long time that it is only that sort of level. You know, you need a Manhattan project plus a Marshall Plan plus Apollo project plus plus scale of effort to really get to the level of deployment and innovation around clean energy and then displacement of dirty energy for steel and industry and cement and you know, reworking the world's agriculture and so on. All those things require such huge volumes of investment. It's really only government that can ultimately do that. And it hasn't chosen to till now. Maybe post-COVID, we will have had the lived experience of it in face of a crisis and we'll choose to do it now on climate. And it may be, you know, coincident with the job need, you know, same day that we put another couple of trillion dollars down, which we'll continue to do for months and years here, I believe. We've announced another 6 million jobless this week after last week's shocking 6 million jobless. So jobs, jobs, jobs will be the catch cry of our time for a year or two. The good news is what we do in energy is actually also a job creation machine. So for for both the reason it's a climate solution and that it is an economic salve to the crisis we've created at our hand by crushing whole sectors of the economy as a government intervention, we will now lean in and intervene as a government to lift up energy because it is the most job-dense investment strategy that a government can make. I definitely want to dig in on a number of things that you just mentioned, but before we do, maybe we can just take a step back and talk about how you got into doing all this and, and also why. When you initially made the decision so many years ago, what is it that brought you here? The why is almost sort of you know, obvious passion about it and, and commitment to future generations. You know, now my kids are my motivation, but I started when I was a kid in my teens working on atmospheric issues, ozone in Australia, and then climate science. So I helped organize the first sort of public event around this, which was weirdly bipartisan at the time. I think it was 1989. Greenhouse Action Australia was the name of the conference. And it was, you know, kind of a, a nice consensus building thing that we should take action. And here we are. 30 years later, plus and the Australian government's now riven over it and unable to act because of its protection of vested interests. But so I, I did that sort of work, activist work for more than a decade. And why? What, like, where did that come from? I mean, was it from your parents or other role models? Was there, did you hit your head in the shower? What, what led you down that path initially? Honestly, probably I did it as a teenager and I just fell in love with it and got into it and became my social crew and, you know, my sense of identity to some degree and where I met girls and my now wife and, you know, a fantastic career and, and life, actually. I, I loved it, you know, and ended up sort of senior management at Greenpeace, you know, running 100 campaigners around the Pacific region in Papua New Guinea and Fiji and Australia and elsewhere and had a really interesting time of it. But I also evolved perhaps from being just a reactionary boy chasing certain fun things and, and developed a sense of what makes for social change. And I think the work we did in the 90s and noughties was sort of incredibly important to prove that business as usual of the 20th century was going to ruin us and, and cook us with carbon. But we got to a point 
early in the 20th century where we knew that, that we had a problem, Houston. What we then needed was to know that we had real solutions. So around 2006, I decided to, to basically change career, as it were, and start a company instead as a demonstration of solution at scale. And that was a residential solar business. And so I, I began, you know, what became, before I left it, the largest privately held residential solar company in the country and a couple others along the way, you know, got involved with Mosaic, which is still in the business, got involved with a company out of Fiji doing solar as a service, kind of got good at solar finance games and businesses like that. And I've spent better part of, you know, the last 20 years doing that, I guess, while then taking on this role as an investor and entrepreneur support person, which is what we do at New Energy Nexus. Gosh, I mean, that that makes me think, and, and granted, I mean, yours is just kind of an, an end of one, but that maybe we should be sp- spending less time recruiting at, at Stanford and MIT and more time recruiting out of Greenpeace and, and other activist organizations for the next crop of entrepreneurs. Amen. You know, I think the evidence is not just in this small sample, but more in the the failure of that market of venture capital and the like to really deliver meaningful solutions for communities' big problems. You know, it's not sugarcoated. It's it failed. It's LP set as an asset class for over a decade, and it's also failed to really crack any big nuts. Whereas we've left on the table, you know, almost all women and their good ideas, as you know, 96% of venture goes to white guys and most minorities and most ideas outside of, you know, the, the, the few that can get to Sand Hill Road. But anyway, it's another conversation perhaps. But yes, we need to diversify the pool from which we draw innovation and ideas to address this crisis because clearly what we've done to date has failed and we need to accelerate rapidly what's working. And so maybe talk a bit about what your perception was of the nature of the problem of climate change when you first started working on this at Greenpeace or even before that, it sounds like, back in in your teenage years and how that is the same and how that's different from how you think about the nature of the problem today and how the problem's evolved. You know, unfortunately, it probably hasn't changed too much. It's, it's a problem of arithmetic. It's it's a carbon logic that I learned at the hands of the guy that actually drafted the first kind of carbon logic models that the UNFCCC adopted, a guy called Bill Hare, who's now at Potsdam Institute and drives a lot of the weather and climate science thinking around this stuff. You know, we, we know what the atmospheric limits are and, and that we're filling the tub or whatever you want to say. So we have to stop doing that. That then becomes a socioeconomic issue and a cultural one to some degree around, you know, the the ways in which we get things like electricity and mobility services, food, steel, cement, etc. And and there are unfortunately strong incumbents in those economic sectors that are very politically powerful and have obfuscated action and change and withstood the wheel of creative destruction that the normal economic processes through political patronage for a couple of decades, even while pretending to give a shit and worry about it, you know, and, and that extends not just to the companies themselves, but to the financiers that back them and the insurance industry that underwrites them and all the rest. You know, I was involved in early days of working on the reinsurance industry with Greenpeace where they, you know, cried into their, 
their bowls that the risks would rise and and undo them and that they couldn't possibly you know do the actuarials on how to contemplate the extreme weather events that we're having today you know they knew they were coming then this is in the 90s what they did is just price them into their premiums or excluded people from insurance they didn't actually divest their equity holdings which as you know is how insurance industry operates nor did they stop underwriting the fossil fuel businesses that were causing the problem they just perpetuated it so you know there was a cohort of companies basically and state-owned enterprises in some markets that were responsible for you know doubling the co2 in the 30-year period we're talking about you know when i say it's a failure i feel it very deeply because the amount of that carbon budget that was in the sky when i was a kid is twice as much today, despite 30 years of travail, trying to reverse that. And that set of people devoted to perpetuating business as usual have been very successful, as often is the case with incumbents and, and holding thrall of our politicians and politics. But as I say, you know, perhaps this moment in history that we're in the middle of as we talk is one in which we realize that you know, all that stuff about you got to let the market operate is bullshit. You know, when you have a public health crisis, government reaches in and crushes whole sectors of economies, the cruise industry, the tourism sector, restaurants, retail, gaming, you name it. They were all mainstays. And we just chose to shut them down as an act of centrally planned economic thinking in order to protect the public health interest. We now need to enact something akin to that in order to just shut down fossils and move on to a much better, cheaper, faster, cleaner way of doing the things we need, which are electricity and mobility services and steel and cement and agriculture. What do you think the challenges are that inhibit climate from being treated with the urgency that it sounds like you feel that is warranted and required? Basically, some people make a lot of money out of the status quo. It's boiled down to that. There are behavioral issues, but, you know, they're, they're really not that insurmountable. You know, it's, it's about the politics, getting the policy right in order to change the economic system, which means, you know, replacing some companies. We have to stop worrying about companies and start worrying about communities. And if we make that transition in our heads and hearts and congresses and parliaments and elsewhere, what's amazing is we'll have a period of abundance unlike any humanity's ever experienced, much greater than the Industrial Revolution that were the center of the fossil fuel-based revolution because the power, the figurative power as well as the literal power, which is you know the commanding heights of an economy, as it's been called, will be much more distributed and much more in the hands of the community itself. That, however, is a threat as a mental model, which is one of the reasons why it's resisted but not nearly as, as much as just the simple pecuniary self-interest. I think there's also a layer, honestly, Jason, of you know what, what did Winston Churchill say? Never look for a conspiracy when sheer incompetence will explain the facts. You know, I just think we're, we're shit at this, making big moves. We have 7 billion people now on Earth. We're dependent on fossil fuel-based technologies like turbines and the infernal combustion engine and, you know, sort of significant shifts are hard, but hard shouldn't be a reason not to. It's actually, you know, entrepreneurs' grist, right? It's what we go for. 
you were talking before about you know Apollo meets Marshall Plan meets these these different kind of big you know government led initiatives. Do, do you think that a wartime posture is the right one as it relates to the climate change problem? You know, if we had leadership, uh, you know, which you trusted and could go into battle with, but we don't. So probably not. That's why it's not the metaphor that works for me. I think it's going to be a bottoms up thing, which is why I've turned to, you know, the creative class of startups and entrepreneurs that, that, you know, if, if we do the numbers again, a trillion dollars a year, or call it two trillion with mobility and the other sectors thrown in of investment required between now and 2040, you know, 20 plus years of a couple trillion dollars a year, $40 trillion to spend, you know, as you point out, we've already put $4 trillion into the market in the last month. So it's not that big a number relative to the global economy. But we've got to create $40 trillion worth of value over the next 20 years. That's, you know, $40,000 billion businesses, if I'm doing my maths right. You know, so think about, say, a Tesla, how long it took to get to a billion-dollar valuation. You've got to do that 40,000 times in the next couple decades. So we need to bring up lots and lots of startups, social enterprises, solutions, to bring about this transition because unfortunately the top-down military model ain't going to happen when we've got a bunch of buffoons as we do in places of political power. Well, there's two different directions I'd, I'd like to go with that one. One is if we have the right leadership in place, what do you think the right mindset would be? So I guess let me start there and then I'll come back to the other one. For that one, you know, sure, if we had a great, you'd sort of do a bottoms up and a top-down thing, I think ideally. You'd meet in the middle. And, and you'd leverage, you know, market force where it makes sense. You'd also have, you know, industry policy is what we used to call it and, and social democracies around the world. You'd choose which sectors you were going to lean in on and you'd make them go. And, you know, the United States is very good at this. In fact, for example, ICT, you know, we, we did it in spades when we wanted to beat the Russians at microchips for missile control systems. So we flooded a field south of Stanford University with money. We called it Silicon Valley and we spun up thousands of computer companies, which all consolidated into Fairchild and its children. And then they in turn evolved into, you know, the, the seven semiconductor companies we know today and, and all their children in the, the web world and ancillary services that have evolved from that. But it was a function of deep DOD spend, billions and billions and billions of dollars over decades that created that sector, which we dominate and continue to dominate. That's the kind of model I'd be looking for. If we had leadership, but you know, unfortunately, as you know, we don't, and the fish rots from the head. And in that kind of model, it's some combination of, I mean, I would imagine there's R and D, are there subsidies? Is there a price on carbon? Like what what type of government action would bring that type of innovation revolution about? Yes, yes, and yes you know, all of the above and more. I mean, you know, a few things that would really work would be sending a sustained signal to the market, you know, so certainty around things like, say, the EV transition. You know, we are going to say by 2030, no more ICE vehicles, and we mean it, and you got 10 years, work it out, OEMs, autos, etc. Plus, we're going to put incentives in now to create infrastructure to make that real for EV charging or whatever it may be. Plus, we're going to, you know, ratchet up the standards progressively. I mean, California is actually a great laboratory for the world in this regard. You know, what it's done with 
LED lightings by doing lighting standards plus some of the R&D plus some incentives for switching out stuff has dramatically changed the lighting sector and allowed this state to keep its emissions from that load center flat while also turning the world onto LEDs and off incandescence. You know, I mean, without too much trouble, right? You know, a couple of companies screamed like, you know what, for a couple of months, and then they moved on. And, and you know, we, we have the capacity to move on. You know, GM can, can become a ventilator company when it's told to. Ford can make tanks when the president calls and tells it to. And there's self-interest in doing that ultimately when the market is made for you and you know you're going to be able to sell into it, which is basically what the Chinese are doing. I mean, the reason China has come to dominate solar, wind, batteries, electric vehicles, the future, in other words, the entire giant sector of, you know, the majority of new generation, the majority of new electricity grid infrastructure, the majority of growth in automobiles is because they've set mandates, they've done R&D, and they've applied incentives. It's a pretty simple formula, but you named it. And it sounds like in an absence of the government doing those things that you believe that innovation is really the key driver to bring these things about, right? Right. But we should pass kind of what we mean by innovation. You know, yes, there's an innovation agenda, like an invention agenda, de novo innovation, which is still needed, but it's it's actually quite different to what it was even when I started my first company back, you know, in the noughties or at the turn of the century, when we were having a legitimate conversation about what is the energy source that's going to power all of this? You know, is it nukes? Is it hydro? Is it geothermal? Is it wind? Is it solar? Is it solar thermal, CSP? Is it PV? The answers become very clear in the first 20% of the century. It's solar, largely. A flat plate semiconductor that becomes cheaper the more you make it, a learning curve we're very familiar with having gone through it with the other flat plate semiconductor we talked about before. And then there's going to be some other things around the edges. There's going to be a lot of wind because that's a nice complement to, to solar. There might be some geothermal and some hydro and some stuff around the bits. But generation, we now know the answer to. So it's no longer really about innovation in sort of the cliched sense of the term. It is about innovating business models and finance products to pay for a CapEx intensive deployment to get to 70% of terawatt hours produced on Earth by 2050, which is kind of what we need to do with solar. We need to jazz up the finance markets. We need to work out how do you underwrite a solar panel, not for 30 years, but for 50 years, because only if it's a lived product for 50 years does it make sense in the market. You know, all these things, they're the innovations we now need to work around with that. But otherwise, there's just a massive deployment. It's, a, it's about a three or four X, depending on whether we electrify all vehicle platforms in that couple, three decades. So we have to do, when I say three or four X, three or four X of what we've done to date in the century. So, you know, so far we've, we've put in, you know, from less than a gigawatt to hundreds of gigawatts now in the system, we have to put in thousands of gigawatts in the next few decades, three or four X, the, the rate of deployment per decade. And we have to innovate some technologies we don't even have today which are the sort of things that work at low capacity factor in the electricity grid. So, you know, it looks and sounds like a long duration battery, but basically 
It's the stuff that makes an enormous amount of variable renewables, wind and solar, make sense to power not just the electricity grid, but all the mobility solutions, the transport options we take in the future, whether they're private vehicles or scooters or trucks or the Hyperloop or whatever the mobility thing is, it's going to be powered by electricity in this model. And to make sense of massive amounts of wind and solar coming in on a Sunday when no one's moving and doing anything because we're all locked down for the latest wave of the plague that's coming through, we will need to be storing some of those electrons rather than curtailing them. And that will require storage solutions or technologies like hydrogen and things that really are not there yet at all in prototype. With the models that you run on this scenario, which is probably the best, easiest one to look at is the new energy outlook of Bloomberg, you need to have that technology set, they call it technology X, in market by 2030, so 10 years from now. So we've got to invent something and scale it, get it to product market fit in 10 years. And then it has to become as big as the nuclear power sector is today by 2050. So over a 20-year period subsequently, it has to do everything that nukes has done in 70 years since it was invented as part of the military industrial complex with all the subsidy and all the support and all the backing that nukes receive to get to where it is today. This technology set needs to become something and grow in just 20 short years. So yes, there's a, there's a very heavy lift in sort of hard science and hard technology challenges in the innovation game. And then there's this sort of what I call ingenuity, the ingenious combination of things to create innovations in finance to spread and deploy the existing solutions we know we have and just have to get out there. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm not talking about new energy nexus yet. I'm still just talking about kind of the bathtub of for the carbon budget, if you will. But in that vein, how do you think about energy versus other areas of the economy, whether it be food and ag or industrial processes or transportation? Like, is energy the only thing we should be caring about or how should we be allocating our resources and time? Good question, one that I struggle with. But, you know, it's still the big one. When we say, you know, energy, we're talking about the electricity system and then transport, which will be electrified, you know, and that's almost a given now economically. So you've got, you know, the two big segments of the carbon problem. And then you also would address, I think, through that work, you know, say with these, these technology X type things that have low capacity factors that work, you might address steel or cement making, for example, with those. So you take out those segments. Land use and ag and food systems is a, is a whole nother challenge, which requires a similar burst of ingenious innovation, I think, ingenuity around waste of food, which is such a sin anyway, and then the innovation around, you know, how to do protein and things probably better and and the opportunity space for an abundant future with things like kelp farming and as a sink for carbon as well as an amazing protein source so yeah i I think the ag thing is a is a fun one to talk about as is tree planting and and that side of land use it's not something i've spent a lot of time on lately partly because i have a feeling maybe i'm just getting old that we we aren't good at walking and chewing gum. As humans, we have trouble doing two things at once. And we've still not done the electricity thing. You know, here in California, we feel pretty smug that, you know, some days we're 75% clean energy and all days we're sort of 33%. And, you know, every year our cars get cleaner because 
there's less dirty energy in the system and we've, we're going electric at 8% per annum or something like that. It's, it's far from done just here. And we no longer matter because we will get it done. It's by law now, 2045, we have to have decarbonized all sectors of the economy in California. But we're 1% of future GHGs anyway. The world is not here. It's not in America. It's not in Europe. It's not in Japan. And I know the economic profile will shift after COVID, but the demographic profile will not. You know, by 2050, 80% of people on Earth are going to be in Africa and Asia. And so we have to focus a lot of firepower in the next years here on the electricity and mobility markets of Africa and Asia and not get distracted by smaller segments of the problem. You know, I'm not trying to dissuade anyone listening from their passion if it's, you know, fixing ag or working out how to plant a trillion trees, not a billion. That's important too. But I am saying I think that the giant issue of our times is still remaking and rewiring the world and how we move goods and people around. Once we fix that, we may be able to move on to the other sectors. If we don't fix that, it doesn't matter if we address the other sectors. I think what I'm hearing from you is that deployment is key and that ideally the government would be helping, but in absence of the government, we should be doing what we can on the innovation side to accelerate that. How does that translate into tactics or specifics? Or I'd love to just kind of double click on that, like by doing what? A couple of things come to mind. I mean, one is finance engineering. You know, like the big things that have unleashed markets in solar, say, or wind, are, you know, products that you've heard of like PPAs and solar leases is what I was involved in pioneering with longevity or solar loans at Mosaic or, you know, whatever the equivalent is, you know, little startup I've been involved with for years called Kilowatt Hour Analytics that does the solar put so that it can help financiers hedge the risks around performance. Those things actually matter a lot. You know, like I was saying before, I've been working with the Department of Energy on thinking about extending solar products live life cycle so that their value as a productive asset is stretched over a 50-year, not a 30-year amortization schedule. It makes an incredible impact on the LCOE. You know, as we get into storage and, and different chemistries, working out which levelized cost of storage is best for the financiers and the underwriters. It doesn't sound sexy. It's not as you know fun as some of the stuff that preoccupies our, our geeky friends, but it's very, very important. So you know, tactics. We're running a fintech accelerator. How can we help standardize contracts for Southeast Asia to adopt solar products? How can we make you know the the PPA that we genericize here in the states amenable to the laws and cultures and language of 180 other countries? Are these opportunities for companies to solve or things that someone should just do for the public good? Mostly companies. I mean, they're for the public good as well. But yeah, that's a business. Every one of those things I just mentioned is a, is a decent business. I mean, they may not be unicorns, but that's a whole other story. There, there aren't any unicorns. It's my little my hint. They're a mythical beast. The companies of, you know, law in this space, you know, the generate capital, the Solar City, Sunrun stories, you know, this has been important to move the market and, and in deployment, it is a big part of it. Another area of innovation is software, you know, streamlining things to reduce friction because we have to just move so much. I mean, 
to some degree, finance is already lining up. You know, for five years or more now, the majority of the world's investment in energy has gone into wind and solar. You know, you know, fossils has been the alternative energy since 2012 by dollar value. But it's still hard to push new generation assets in, particularly to markets like an Indonesia or a Congo, because it's just hard. And streamlining that, and whether that's a design and engineering solution, taking advantage of satellite imagery and, and drone photography, or whether that's a contracting solution that helps sift and sort, you know, laws and liabilities for the financiers backing the build out of some asset in one of those places. That stuff, you know, the machine learning of contracts may become incredibly important to this massive deployment that we have to do at a, a rate and scale that we've not even contemplated yet. So, you know, I would say tactically, there's two big areas to dive into and put the entrepreneurial genius of Silicon Valley and everyone else that I mentioned before onto, which is financial engineering, software engineering, as well as the hardware and, and stuff that we also need to solve for. And usually we do this in the reverse order where I start with your company and then we go into kind of the bigger picture. But for whatever reason, we started with the bigger picture in this discussion. So maybe let's come back around and talk about New Energy Nexus, if that's okay. Sure. So what is New Energy Nexus? Now that we have the frame for, for your worldview and what you think we need to do to, to get out of this pickle, then it's, I, I think it's, it's a, a really nice segue into your, your slice. Right. So yes, New Energy Nexus is an international organization that supports startups to succeed in spreading clean energy solutions. We do it by running incubators, accelerators, and funds in eight countries now, and we have affiliates in about 90 countries. We grew out of something that's quite venerable and may be known to some of your listeners called the California Clean Energy Fund, which was stood up in 2004 and was really, you know, probably the, the proto organization of this kind in the entrepreneur support organization space for clean energy entrepreneurs. We, we had a little fund back then from the weirdly capitalized from the settlement of PG&E's first bankruptcy in 2001. We invested in businesses like Tesla. You might have heard of them. You know, back when we did that, about the time Elon was getting involved, that was a wild gamble. You know, the Californian states obviously very happy with us having done that because it's become the largest manufacturer, the largest exporter by value of any company in the golden state as it's grown to become the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, that's a remarkable success story. It's also happened to disrupt categories and create an entire impetus to change the automobile as we know it. So it's a good bet. We didn't take any significant advantage of that from a pecuniary point of view. We, we sold our stock shortly after they went public. <laughs> but, you know, that's not the point. We, we put the money we took off the table because we're a nonprofit into the UC Davis Energy Efficiency Center, which has become one of the key standard setting organizations in the country for things like lighting and HVAC, which are, you know, unsexy, like unlike Tesla, but incredibly important. And, and the California initiatives to mandate appliance standards and the like, which has been driven by places like UC Davis in part, has been incredibly impactful in the energy efficiency space. We invested in Bridge Lux, which helped convert the world to LEDs. We were in Solar Century, you know, one of the big solar players. So anyway, we have a storied history over 15 years in California. But in the last few years, we've sort of taken a step back and looked at this strategic question you're asking, like, you know, how do we move the dial now going into the 2020s, the, the, the decisive decade that it is? And, and we decided to go, you know, to 
use a Wayne Gretzky on you, go where the puck is going, which is west of here. It's Asia. And, and it's not just China and India, which everyone talks about, although it's that too, and we have programs in China and India, but it's, it's the 700 million people sort of south and east of there in Vietnam and Myanmar and the Philippines and Indonesia who currently are, you know, amongst the fastest growing economies in the world, surely to be set back by COVID, but still going to come up on the ladder of energy access and on the ladder of energy consumption from, say, take it Indonesia, 300,000 people, beg your pardon, 300 million people, population of the US, currently consuming about 1,000 kilowatt hours of electricity per capita per annum. We're at about 10,000 in the US. They won't get to where the US is for reasons of their demand, but also hopefully technology choices and efficiency and stuff. But they'll get up to five or six or 7,000, sort of where Singapore is today. If they do that with coal, which is their current integrated resource plan, or where they can't string wires from coal plants on Java to one of the 7,000 islands, they'll put diesel generators, which are twice as bad from a carbon point of view. It doesn't matter what California does. Indonesia can cook us all, just that one country. The good news is it's better for Indonesia to do the clean energy option. It's cheaper. They'll build it out faster. They'll get more stable, reliable electricity supply on 7,000 islands, microgridded around renewables and storage than they would on some fragile, brittle grid built around a few big coal power plants. So we think we can get that going there. But to do that, we need a whole crop of companies coming up in Indonesia offering that economic option. And so we've just three years ago started a program of incubating and accelerating startups in Indonesia. We have a, you know, just a, f- a couple dozen now and, and a small fund to invest in them of a couple million dollars. It's tiny, it's, but it's literally the largest early stage clean energy fund in the country of Indonesia. So that's what we do. We get into markets that matter and we try to inoculate them to use a word at the moment, with you know clean energy enterprises and entrepreneurs and startups, and we support those startups with training and curriculum and money where we can to go further faster. And is this an independent nonprofit, New Energy Nexus, or where does your funding come from? We have a range of revenue from government contracts. We run programs for the state of California, a fund here called CalSeed, and another initiative with the University of California Office of the President called CalTestBed. We have a program with NYSERDA in New York. We also receive philanthropic grants from big foundations, donors, and we have some sort of corporate members and sponsorships for different events and and pieces of work. We we have a big program in energy storage that's been going for five or six years. And that's, you know, involves the national labs and a bunch of big companies. And we run a battery challenge for some of them and, and other things that get us to pay our way we you know small team doing mighty work really it's 50 some people in the eight countries i mentioned and you know touching hundreds and thousands of startups annually which in turn hopefully serve you know thousands and tens of thousands of customers problem is you know our our own goal for our little organization and and we radically share everything and are entirely open sourced about the, the strategies and methodologies of it we want to get to 100,000 in the decade coming, but that's not even going to touch the side of either the opportunity or the need. We think 100,000 is, is just the beginning in terms of the number of companies that need to be created to truly populate the space and do all that deployment and innovation that we mentioned. 
Was it a hard decision when you set up this organization for it to be a nonprofit? Had you considered the the for-profit route and what are the pros and the cons of each approach? So just to be clear, I, I sort of inherited the California Clean Energy Fund as its managing director in 2015 and, and with a colleague, sort of, or several colleagues, obviously, turned it around and, and became New Energy Nexus as a global program. And yes, and, and you know, we're not, not able to take on for-profit-like mechanisms. You know, we can invest and, and take a return. We can't take it off the table for our own individual gain, obviously, but that model is not outside of our reach. The point, though, is when you're in the incubation acceleration business, I think there's a pretty clear reason to be basically non-profit, which is that if you're doing it for profit and you've invested in some of these companies, and I learned this by having helped set up a, a fairly successful private incubator in the solar space, you quickly become interested in the survival of your little cohort of companies, right? You want them to win because you put your stake into them and, and you want others to fail, actually. Like that's, you know, every every entrepreneur knows that, you know, when they pitch the VC and they don't get the VC to back them, but they, they back a competitor in their category, that VC is out there gunning for you, right? So there's a channel conflict of a kind, whereas... At this stage in the portfolio, particularly where we live, which is very early stage companies, you know, it's sort of a bit of a mistake to imagine that we can actually control for the outcome. You know, that there's just too many variables. There's too many black swan events coming down the pipe to be able to say my my version of that solar remote solar design software is going to be the winner, or my version of that finance product is going to be the one that's going to go to scale and save the world. Rather, you're better off putting lots of companies on the starting line and hoping that some of them will get to the finish, which is a slightly different mentality to the for-profit early stage investor category. So I think we're very privileged to, to be able to run it as a nonprofit. We attract all sorts of patient capital as well, and we put that to work. We, we have big backers like the IKEA Foundation that gave us $10 million to do work in energy access. You know, we have foundations that have helped capitalize a microfinance facility in Uganda, for example, with our program there, which, you know, the loan book is not, you know, significant to many of your listeners. Probably it's, you know, tens of thousands of dollars annually, but it, in populations that they serve who are living on two and $3 a day, that's an enormous sum of funds. And those companies, a hundred or so, which are quite sustainable and produce a decent margin and, and so on, are touching tens of thousands of families with solar products and services. So, you know, it, it's not really about the number so much as the impact of the capital that we catalyze and, and bring to bear. We, we, we run a bunch of things that I could bore you with, sort of pilot facilities in different debt markets, as well as the equity and grant schemes that we have. Depends on what you want to talk about. Well, one thing I didn't ask you about is Powerhouse, because I, I know that you were a a co-founder of, of Powerhouse. So I guess, how did that come about? And, and well, what is Powerhouse for, for anyone that, that, that doesn't know? And, and what was it about that opportunity that made it worthy of allocating a portion of your time? Yeah, that was the one I was talking about. And it's a great incubator, accelerator, and now fund here in Oakland also, partnered with Emily Kirsch, who runs it and is the, the very charismatic leader of it today. We were friends. She was an activist also. So that's one of those examples of people you don't know were working in the sort of social movement scene and 
came to me when I was at Sungevity and said, would like to do more solution stuff. She'd helped build some solar projects on community buildings with Mosaic in Oakland. And we came up with this plan to use some spare office space that we had under our lease to house some startups that we knew and host hackathons and get into the game of acceleration incubation. And lo and behold, whatever it is, eight or nine years later, she's turned that into a powerhouse, haha, to make a pun, of, of the solar and, and smart energy innovation space. You know, she's attracted a fund to it and, and is doing amazing work. I need to build one of those in every city in Asia and Africa over the next decade in order that we can meet this demand and abate the carbon going into the sky. And, and by the way, we also need to build one of those in every city in America. You know, Boston's got Greentown Labs where you are and we've got Powerhouse and Cyclotron Road and a couple more plug and play and whatever here in the Bay. But every Rust Belt town should have an incubator that's devoted to streamlining the deployment of wind and solar across America for hardening the grid, smartening it, getting behind the meter, deploying storage, doing the things that the advanced mobility solutions will demand. Those are small businesses. They they may not be venture fundable in all cases, but you know, we've been working recently with a great little incubator in Ohio doing yeoman's work in terms of spitting out smart companies in an opportunity zone that we've been helping form capital around. And as I say, you need, because of the failure of government to go back to you know, that failure of markets and government to address this crisis as it's been coming down the pike for the last few decades, we now need to you know, step in and do it at the local level. And, and an incubator, like the co-working space, literally and figuratively becomes the hub of this economy of ideas and innovation that is needed to make that ramp of deployment and innovation possible. And given how much you're choosing to focus on innovation, I'm curious, when I look at the landscape, I've, I've, because I haven't really been focused on any one piece the last year and a half, I've just been trying to learn about everything. Although you could argue that I, that it has an innovation bent, which would make sense because that's where I spent my whole career and where I'm passionate about. But it seems almost like a rainforest where everything is interrelated, where like consumer sentiment and getting employers to change and scientists and government agencies and, and the climate press. And it's like every, you know, and, and innovation and capital and philanthropy and and so on, right? And so if you're focused on one piece of this, regardless of the piece, how important is it that you interrelate, interact, have a handle on what else is going on? Like, is it distracting to try to understand the, the big picture or is it essential? How do these pieces work together? In question, I mean, I, I think one of the things I learned both as an activist and entrepreneur and I'm constantly relearning is that focus is the best resource you can find, you know, better than money, better than mentors, better than new ideas. It's the ability to dive in deep on something rather than stretch yourself a mile wide. You know, focus is actually, it, it creates opportunity. If you can create time in your calendar to focus on delivering a great business, it's probably going to be that you deliver a great business, whereas if you're distracted from it, you won't. And yet, you know, in this game and at this rate of change that we're talking about, which is now, you know, a gale of creative destruction, I keep on coming back to that economic concept, you have to be situationally aware and conscious of things. But it's it's probably a bit like driving, you know, you, you had to 
learn how to understand what's in your peripheral vision, but be focused on the steering wheel and the gear stick and stuff that you had to control. And, you know, if you're getting into the game of climate solutions, yeah, you want to learn about macroeconomics of fossil fuel subsidies to the tunes of trillions and why that's unfair and perverse and you know you need to understand the the lack or dearth of true government subsidy and support for the alternatives and and you know you need to understand the policies and politics behind that and yet you also just need to pick your path and just crush it you know go down that route and deliver i i think is my answer Last two questions. So one is just if you had $100 billion and you could put it towards anything to accelerate this clean energy transition, where would you put that money and how would you allocate it? <laughs> Did you say $100 billion? $100 billion. So this, I've heard you say this before, but I hadn't expected to do it. I, you know, I would start with you know, what I said a moment ago, which is that we need in every city in Asia and Africa and America, you know, and we're talking second tier cities, not just the Boston Bay Area, but you know, the Wuhans, as well as the Shanghais and Beijings and the Shenzhens and the, you know, Kinshasa's, as well as Lagos and Cape Town and, you know, Balakpapan and Samarinda, not just Jakarta. Uh, we need hubs that are sustainably financed to support entrepreneurs. They may be privately motivated and, and run it as that system, or they may be publicly uh, driven, not for profit, as it were. But, you know, that's probably call it $10 million a year per one in 100 cities across the globe for 10 years, like sustained funding. So I think if my maths is right, 10 by 10, by, you know, it's like $10 billion that you could get through that network of 100 of those. And there's probably more to do. Then I'd do some province building. I think there are going to be very big areas of the globe that will become centers of this industrial revolution, the fourth or whatever it is that we're going to come into post-COVID as we go into the clean energy transition in earnest this century. So, you know, think about places that were centers of coal mining and burning the rural valley of Germany or, you know, belts in China or the US. In fact, what are they? So Southern California, I think, is ripe for the transportation electrification phenomenon. It's the largest market for automobiles in America. It's got a huge port and infrastructure. It's got a dozen EV manufacturers already of scale and interest. And it's also sitting right next to the largest lithium resource in the world at the Salton Sea. I think that needs to be developed as a public-private initiative on the scale of Silicon Valley. That's probably a $10 billion sort of spend. So I've spent $20 billion of your 100 billion. I'm trying to do this quickly. You know, there's probably other provinces like that in places like Nigeria, you know, these huge population countries that are rising and need massive investments in manufacturing and scaling of these technology sets for their customers and audiences. And then what could I do with some other chump change? I could pick up most of the coal sector right now and just put it to bed, just, just bury it once and for all. I think I was looking at this on Twitter. Peabody's now worth about $250 million. So can I have a billion dollars to buy Peabody and all its liabilities and just shut it down and take care of its workers? That's one thing I'd do. The rest would just be this sort of heroic capital that we manage at, at New Energy Nexus. You know, we would put in structures of equity and debt that are concessional probably, or, or as I call them, heroic, by which I mean sort of more patient or positioned differently in the stack to favor other investors to make money in their return. 
I still think we would make money out of it, but we can position loan loss reserves of billions of dollars for asset financing, solar farms in emerging markets that have high risk profiles. We've got a pilot fund for $5 million in India right now doing rooftop segments. You know, the default rates are good. The the, the characteristics of that market are great. That's got to be a several billion dollar opportunity right there that I could spend some of the remaining cash on. Sort of depends on what return profile you want, Jason. You know, what's your hurdle rate and when do you want it by? But, you know, we could definitely manage deploying a lot of loan loss reserves, first loss money, recoverable grants. We need a bigger machinery, so we'd spend a couple hundred million dollars on building that out. But yeah, it's it's a fun exercise. Does that give you a sense of where I'd put it? Absolutely. And that was one of the more detailed answers that I've gotten on the show as well. So kudos for that. And the last question is just for anyone like me who's coming into the, the space motivated by the problem, but without a lot of foundational knowledge and not exactly sure where their skill set can be best applied and is kind of on a journey to figure that out. What advice do you have for them? You know, great. Get involved. Thank you. You know, you're going to be part of the most important decade in history. So first off, kudos to you for jumping ship and doing it. Now, pick your hill, using the military metaphor that I said I didn't want to. You know, what is your brave and heroic goal? Which one of these many mighty missions are you going to take on and deliver on? And give yourself that resource of focus, choose it and stick with it. And, you know, Lots of hard days of work lead to lots of weeks of good work and months and quarters. And, you know, as, as Evan Williams joked, you know, 10 years from now, you'll wake up and be an overnight success in, in the story of our times. You know, truly the one that will make it possible that, you know, seven generations from now will look back at this first half of the 21st century and say, thank God they did that. They were there thinking about us and, and made a transition from a, a literally planet-destroying business-as-usual plan to one which was more abundant and had opportunity for all, as well as the goods that we expect, like electricity and, and mobility. And Danny, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? I guess I should encourage listeners to get online at newenergynexus.com and, and get involved. We have a great Slack community, actually a New Energy Nexus network Slack that you can find on our resource page of the website. You can donate if you want to to our nonprofit, you know, and, and just be engaged in the, the business of startups to drive solutions. We need hundreds of thousands in years to come. And I know your listenership are technology-enabled, well-heeled folk who know how to start up startups. So get going in the in the, the space that makes history and, and abundance for everyone. Awesome. Well, this was great. Thank you so much for all of your work in the space. And thank you for making the time to share some of it with all of us as well. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.